Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. We are systematically working our way uh, through the book of Revelation. Um, We've been doing it in little bursts. Um, Actually, uh, not by design, but bursts of seven. Uh, So seven talks, kind of looking at the letters to the churches, uh, then seven talks in the the middle section that we are kind of in the midst of uh, right now. So this is something we're just working through and just finding, although it's a pretty tough read, uh, it is highly relevant for our situation today if we just dig a bit beneath the surface, which is what we're going to do uh, for the next half an hour or so. I want to frame uh, this whole talk based on this passage we've just heard read to us uh, on the simple question, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God do something? Perhaps this is a question you've asked at some point in your life. I don't know, maybe you've experienced some kind of injustice. Perhaps you have tried to do what's right and it just bounced back in your face. And you're thinking, is this the reward I get for doing the right thing? And to make matters worse, often the people responsible for the injustice, well, they just carry on, probably emboldened to do the same kind of thing again and again. And we want to ask the question... If God is there, why doesn't he do something? This is certainly a question that the first hearers of Revelation would have been asking. Back in their context, it was very, very costly to be a faithful follower of Jesus. They were excluded from business opportunities. Uh, They were slandered. Some of them were even imprisoned and killed for their faith. And way back in chapter 6, verse 10, John records how he saw a vision of some of these people who had been killed for their faith, and they were crying out to God with a loud voice. This is what they prayed. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they've done to us? How long? Long, O Lord. Lord, why don't you do something? And so, although a lot of people have a problem with chapters like the ones we've just heard, they they don't like all the talk of God's judgment and God's wrath, when it comes down to it, I think probably all of us quite like the thought of justice. Or to put it the other way, we hate injustice. We want wrongdoers to be punished, especially when we are the victims. Now, right through the book, repeatedly, if you remember, we have had these hints, haven't we, that justice, judgment is definitely coming. If you recall, we we had the seven seals of the scroll being opened, and as each one of those seals was opened, we we got a little glimpse of the judgments which were on the way. And after that, we, we had the seven trumpets, which were very much waking us up and announcing the judgments that were coming. But if you remember, there was then this little interlude, this pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpets while witnesses declared God's message to the world. And we're told that some people responded to their message and gave glory to God. In fact, as we see here in chapter 15, verse 4, God's desire through all of this 
is for all nations to hear of him and come and worship before him, which is why we've sent Jess to Chad and why we're standing with her and praying for her this morning. We, we, we know God's desire for the nations to come to him. It's, it's like he's holding back judgment to give people time to repent. And so this question is still hanging in the air. How long, O Lord? But we're seeing that justice is definitely on the way. And we're also seeing that God is deliberately delaying so that he can give these warnings, so he can give people as much time as possible before the final judgment eventually falls. And now today, we get to this final sequence of sevens. We've had the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and today's passage is all about seven bowls. And it feels like, at last, the prayer of those martyrs who had lost their faith earlier on in Revelation, their prayer is finally being answered. Back in Revelation 5, we see that these golden bowls were full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And as we've already seen, they were crying out that those who had put them to death would experience God's justice. And here in chapter 15, verse 7, we see these same golden bowls, which were full of prayers being offered to God, now being handed out to the angels as they leave the throne room. And this time, these bowls aren't full of prayers, they're full of the wrath of God, and they contain these awful seven plagues. It's a very vivid picture telling us that what is about to happen These judgments, these plagues, are God's answer to the prayers of the martyrs who had lost their lives. And yet, even in this chapter, where God finally says, it is finished, even here, it's emphasized again and again that God is still delaying justice for as long as as he possibly can. Even as these bowls are being poured out, God in his kindness is still giving final chances for people to come to him. Now, if you're a parent with young children, you probably know something of this whole dynamic. Your child perhaps is behaving like an absolute monster and is heading for inevitable trouble. And every time you ask them to stop, for whatever reason, they choose to ignore you. It feels like a slow-motion car crash. And as a parent, you're doing everything you possibly can to try to warn them and will them and encourage them and cajole them to turn around before the point of no return. And really, that's a picture of what today's passage is all about. And so, let's see how this plays out in some of these plagues that are being described here. For example, the first plague, verse 2. So the first angel left the temple and poured out his bowl on the earth, and horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. So there are these terrible sores, but they're not intended to wipe these people out. No, they're to bring them 
to repentance. And we can see that because these people are still around when the fifth plague comes in verse 11. Although sadly, they still haven't learned the lesson. They still haven't repented. Instead, we read they cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores, but they did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. Or take the second plague. This is in verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything in the sea died. Now, if you know your Old Testament, this by now should be ringing a few bells for you, because back in the days of Moses, if you remember, God had turned the Nile into blood. Now, why did he do that? Of all the things he could have done, why turn the river into blood? Well, part of the answer was to convict the Egyptians of their sins. Because if you know the story, the Nile was already bloody. If you remember, a whole generation of Israelite babies have been drowned by the Egyptians. And really, this plague was deliberately underlining their need to repent. And it's the same in Revelation, that the blood in the water, according to verse 6, is to convict them. Why? Well, we read, since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. And so, blood will have blood, as Macbeth famously put it, that the blood they shed is calling out for justice. And now this plague of blood is like this warning that this is what's on the way. More blood if they don't repent. But that's not all. There are lots of other reminders here of the plagues which God sent to Egypt, as well as these painful sores and water turning into blood. Uh, We've just heard, read, of a plague of darkness, a plague of hail, and a plague of these demonic frogs. Now, as we read this and as we hear this, uh, might be wondering why they're all of these Exodus connections. Well, as I've been trying to show you, I think the plagues are these judgments from God, but they're judgments with as many chances to repent and turn to God as possible. It's like after each of the plagues in Exodus, we get a bit of a progress report that the plague of sores comes, but still Pharaoh refuses to repent. God sends that the plague of blood, but still Pharaoh will not repent. God sends the hail, but still Pharaoh won't repent. Pharaoh finally says he's going to repent, but then he changes his mind. And so God sends the darkness, but still Pharaoh refuses to repent. And I think we get this same idea here in Revelation 16. Four bowls in quick succession, but still the people won't repent. The fifth bowl of darkness, but still they refuse to repent. Then the final two bowls, but still they won't repent. And so all the way through, God is delaying justice. And each time, He is giving another chance to repent. And I know this subject of judgment and wrath, it can feel heavy, 
But if we take a step back and see what's happening through this narrative, you've got to conclude what a patient, what a generous, what a kind God we have. Even as He's sending judgment, His goodness, as we were singing earlier, is still running after us if we would only turn and receive it. Now, moving on. If you're familiar with Exodus, you'll remember that back in Egypt, the final defeat of Pharaoh's army wasn't actually accomplished through the plagues at all. It came later. It came when they were swept away by the Red Sea. And you get the same sequence here in Revelation as well. The plagues aren't actually what finish off the beast and his allies. They just gather the armies together for this final battle, which is going to happen later on in chapter 19. And that's what the sixth bowl is describing. Verse 16, and the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies in a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. And so, although we do get this, it is finished statement in verse 17, we don't really get an all is finished until chapter 21, verse 6, after all the enemies of God have been fully destroyed. And so this chapter, or these chapters we're in today, they aren't about the final end. They're about giving people as many chances as possible to repent before the final end. Now, just by way of a quick aside, I will try and in a minute explain this reference to Armageddon, which some of you may be slightly distracted by, because people take this reference and they kind of locate it on a map and conclude that this geographical location is where World War III is going to break out, there's going to be this kind of global catastrophic event in this geographical place that's going to signal the end of the world. But actually, like we've seen with so many of the names in this book, like Babylon and Sodom, Eden, Egypt, I think Armageddon is also a symbolic name. Armageddon is literally Mount of Megiddo. And in the Old Testament, this is where God defeats his enemies again and again and again. It's, for example, where God defeated his enemies in the day of Deborah in Judges 5, and it's where God defeated the idolatrous king Ahaziah in 2 Kings chapter 9. And so it kind of be the equivalent of us saying today that in the end, Satan is going to meet his Waterloo, which, if you don't know, is where Napoleon was famously defeated. So we're not saying literally that Satan is one day going to end up in Belgium, and we certainly don't mean that he's going to end up in the UK's busiest train station. What we mean is that Satan is going to get his comeuppance. He will be finally defeated. And that's what I think this reference to Armageddon is simply trying to communicate. Now we've got that sorted. Let's return to where we were. We've been seeing that just like in the Exodus God sends these plagues deliberately as wake-up calls. He sends them to say, all is not well with the world. Can't you see you are out of step with your Creator? Whatever you do, you need to repent and urgently. 
And of course, all of that is pretty relevant for us right now, isn't it? I mean, we've just lived through a global pandemic, which has very much been a wake-up call. And as we now frantically just try to get back to living as we were before, there have been these other huge events on the global scene that have shaken us, the ongoing war in Ukraine, then the devastating earthquake that's hit Turkey and Syria. It's like the shockwaves keep on coming. Now, one of the things that struck me personally, as I've watched some of that awful footage of the destruction caused by the recent earthquake, is how people in the majority world tend to know what to do. What do they do? It's like they fall to their knees and they weep and they wail and they mourn and they cry out to the heavens. There's this posture of humility and desperation. But if you watch footage of disasters in the West, what do we do? I think there's one dominant overriding emotion, and it's not weeping, and it's certainly not humbling ourselves. It's more a case of indignation. Like, how could this happen to us? Why are we suffering? Why are our rights being threatened in this way? It's like, rather than humbling ourselves and asking what we can learn from this, more often than not, we switch into assuming, if I'm rich enough and clever enough, surely I should be entitled to sidestep this. And so we shut our ears to any suggestion that there might be a reason to humble ourselves, or that we are out of step with our Creator. Instead, we foolishly pour all of our energies into trying to just get things back to how they were before. Now, of course, there are some voices that try and alert us to the fact there might be something deeper going on. Prince Harry, for example, is quoted as saying, Mother Nature has sent us to our rooms for bad behavior. To really take a moment and think about what we've done, will we learn from this discipline? Now, he might have missed the point slightly, but at least he recognizes that there is something for us to learn in the midst of all these awful events. But these voices are actually pretty rare. And so it's important then that we, as the church, are clear about what is really going on and that we don't shut our ears to the voice of God. As C.S. Lewis points out, the Bible is very clear that plagues, and all pain generally, are God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There's a saying, isn't there, that most people don't look up until they're flat on their backs. And I suggest we as a church need to be the ones taking a lead on this. First of all, we need to be those who humble ourselves. We need to lead the way in calling out to God. And then we need to be helping others make the most of the opportunity to look upwards and turn back to God while there is still time. As Richard was saying last week, that there's got to be an urgency about this. And actually, this whole truth we're thinking about today, that God 
delays justice deliberately to give people time to repent is actually a wonderful encouragement for us if we're those who have returned to God. Another passage in the New Testament that kind of mirrors the one we're in today, 2 Peter 3. Uh, in that situation, there are these kind of scoffers around. that They're saying Jesus isn't going to come back, that they kind of rubbish this whole idea of final judgment. And Peter says, look, you've completely misread the times. That this delay is deliberate. It is to give people longer to repent and turn back to God. And he goes on to explain, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Actually, for some of us in this room, if the Lord had returned just two months ago or two years ago or 20 years ago, we would have been caught out we wouldn't have been ready. So we should be amazed at the Lord's kindness, that he's so incredibly patient. And every day we wake up and he still hasn't returned. You and I know why that is. It is for one reason. It's because of his kindness. He's holding off another day. And he's doing it deliberately to give people another chance to repent and turn to him. It is not slowness, it's wonderful grace and mercy. And really, it's this perspective that you and I need to remember when we're asking that question that we began with, why doesn't God do something? Because the answer, of course, is he will He is going to sort everything out very thoroughly. But we can trust his timing. We know what he's doing. His delay isn't slowness, it's patience. He's giving us and the people around us another day to repent. So I think this is the main thrust of this passage. I hope you've kind of got the message. It's about how God keeps delaying justice to give people, to give you and I time to repent. But there is also another theme in these verses, and this one is a bit more disturbing, because tragically, despite all of this, some still won't return to him. It's like there's this undercurrent of unrepentance, rebellion against God just running through this whole chapter. And just to warn you, it is very unsettling, Verse 9, everyone was burned by the blast of heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over all these plagues. They did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give him glory. Now, giving glory to God, it's exactly what we were called to do in last week's 
passage. In chapter 14, verse 6, we read, I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. But here we discover these people refuse to do that. As we've seen already in verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores, but they did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. So rather than receiving these plagues as wake-up calls, rather than humbling themselves and flinging themselves on the mercy of God, as they turn it around into an extra reason to curse God, is what we see right at the very end of the passage in verse 21. There was a terrible hailstorm and hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God because of the terrible plague of the hailstorm. I think what's so disturbing about all of this is that previously in Revelation that there was a kind of logic to why some people were rejecting Jesus. Like we saw a couple of weeks ago how rejecting him had some real tangible benefits. Like you could get ahead in business in a whole new way or you could avoid persecution and so on. And we can at least understand that on one level. But here some of the plagues strike only those who follow the beast And yet still their loyalty to the beast can't be dislodged. Even when it's completely illogical to cling to the beast, they still won't shift. They will not turn back to God. You know, sometimes people ask the question, don't they? How can a loving God send people to hell? Maybe you've asked that question yourself. And if we're we're struggling with this question, we need to understand that on the cross... God's arms were wide open, literally, as he was offering each one of us at incredible cost to himself the opportunity to come back to him, to receive his love, to receive his forgiveness. And yet, whilst that's true, God never forces anyone to come back. We, we still have to do the coming back ourselves. I'm reminded of George Bernard Shaw's famous response to a talk about God's offer of love, grace, forgiveness through the cross. In the middle of the talk, he stood up and shouted in a loud voice, I will not let Jesus die for me. I will pay for my sin myself. If you're a Christian, those are very chilling words, aren't they? And yet they express the determination of so many in this world to preserve their autonomy to preserve their independence from God at all costs, even at the highest cost. And this passage is telling us that ultimately God will honour those decisions. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he puts it like this. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? to wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so 
on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. Now, don't you see the dreadful tragedy of those words? On one hand, such an incredible love, yet on the other, such a perverse resistance to it. Remember how Jesus wept over the people of his own day who resisted his love. He cried out in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And so with tears in his eyes and nail marks in his hands and his feet, Jesus will ultimately give people up to what they themselves have chosen. And so clearly, this passage is a call to repentance. God is delaying his judgment in kindness to give each of us time to turn back to him. And the point is, we are not to be like those people who harden their hearts and reject God's love. This is very much a warning to us. If all this talk of judgment and wrath has fueled some fear on your part, the truth is, you are right to be afraid of the judgment of God. I mean, no one in their right mind would hear all of these warnings and just shrug it off. But that being said, you don't have to live in that fear. There is a place of safety. There is a place of protection that is open to you. It's the place where the bowl has already been poured out, where the wrath has already been absorbed and extinguished. It's in the person of Jesus. And if you're here today as someone who is yet to trust in Jesus, please, why not make today the day you turn to him for salvation? Why not pray to him and say, thank you, Lord, for your patience with me. Thank you for these wake-up calls that you've put into my life, uncomfortable as they might be. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my rebellion against you. I want to stop my running away. I want to come back to you. Why don't you please forgive me? Please help me to follow you, to put you first, to submit to you, and to know this relationship which you offer. What's stopping you taking that step today if you haven't already? But of course, this call to repent isn't just for those who haven't yet done it for the first time. In fact, most of the uses of the word repent in Revelation, about three quarters of the uses, are directed at the seven churches that we looked at in chapters two and three. Most of the calls to repent are directed to Christians. If you remember, repent, Ephesian church, and do the works you did at first. Repent, Pergamum church, do not tolerate permissive teaching. Repent, Thyatira church, stop tolerating immorality in the church. Repent, Sardis church, stop being sleepy and unresponsive spiritually. Repent, Laodicean church, stop being lukewarm and complacent. 
You see the point? What distinguishes the church from the world outside is not that one is called to repent and the other doesn't need to. It's that one listens and does repent while the other is yet to do it. And so, if we want to be the ones who avoid the judgment of this chapter, we're to be a repentant people. That's why Jesus interrupts this passage, addresses us directly in verse 15. He says, look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And it's this sudden interruption in the middle of the sixth bowl because Jesus' coming is going to be like this sudden interruption. Like, in my experience, thieves don't tend to drop a calling card round in advance telling you which time and day they're going to visit your home. But Jesus then adds this. I'm going to finish with this. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. None of us are going to put it in our diary, but any one of us could be standing before the Lord Lord Jesus this time tomorrow, either if he returns or if we don't make it through the night. And the question then won't be, did you once sometime pray a prayer of repentance, or were you once baptized? The question will be, are you a repentant person today? Are you ready, are you prepared to meet Jesus right now? And if not, Jesus would say, there will be great shame but to the one who is ready, to the one who is trusting the Lamb who shed His blood for us, to the one who is living, not a perfect life, but a repentant life, Jesus says here, it is going to be the best day of your life. Blessed, happy are all who are watching for me. What a day that's going to be. And what an encouragement, what a provocation to us to stay ready. I'm just going to leave just a few moments of space now for you to reflect on where this message lands for you. What do you need to do as a response? Just a, a few prompts to help you. I encourage you to thank him for his delay, his mercy in your life. But I also encourage you to make the most, don't over-dramatize it, but what could be your, your final opportunity to repent and deal with sin and compromise in your life. I wouldn't normally do this, but I just want to encourage you, if you know you need to respond to this message, whether it's turning to Jesus for the first time or you know there's stuff you need to repent of in your life, or maybe you just want to humble yourself before him and worship him. It might be a bit uncomfortable and it might be a bit awkward. But I'd just like to invite you to kneel where you are before him. If you know that there's some business you need to do with him, don't worry about the people around you. They don't matter at all. Why don't you just put yourself in a position of humility, humbling yourself, flinging yourself on the mercy and the grace of God to receive from him. Can I leave a few moments? You respond how you want to. Then we'll wrap up.